Hello and welcome to the latest series of Magnified with Matt Cooper, a podcast series which allows me the opportunity to spend more time with guests than radio allows for and gives me the opportunity to probe and perhaps get to know people a little bit better and hopefully allow you the opportunity to find out about people that you either knew of but didn't know certain things about or maybe have never heard of but will find very interesting nonetheless. Today's first guest in our second series is somebody that I have known for, oh, at this stage, well over 30 years, on and off, coming across him in his business enterprises, one of the most fascinating doers that I have come across, now in his 70s, a very successful businessman who has made two major fortunes, but still is driven to actually do things, particularly in the environmental sphere in which he is really extraordinarily interested. Eddie O'Connor is a fascinating man. I hope you enjoy this magnified with him. Eddie O'Connor, thank you so much for joining me at my kitchen table. It has been many years since I last saw you. I used to see you regularly when you were boss of Borden Mona. And I was thinking about how to describe you to our listeners. Would it be evangelical environmentalist or entrepreneurial environmentalist or pragmatic environmentalist or you could also say half billionaire environmentalist uh, are those terms correct is the environmentalist something that you regard yourself as being well right now yes absolutely matt um since since i was in bordnemona the I wasn't when I went into Bordnemona. I mean, I had very little clue about it. I was just your typical engineer, you know, interested in management and getting on and doing, making things happen, um, an organiser, if you like. And then in 1989, I met uh, a member of our board, a guy called Owen O'Neill, and uh, he told me about global warming. And I was very surprised to hear this. Uh, I hadn't known about it. I should have known about it because it was an Irishman, John Tyndall, who actually um, discovered the phenomenon of, of certain molecules in the atmosphere capturing the energy. The, it's actually the reflected energy from the Earth that they capture. And CO2 was doing it. And I, I remember at the time saying, but that's the only way we make electricity, apart from some hydro and a bit of nuclear um, it's by burning stuff and and uh, anyway once i found that out that gave me a mission uh, then in my life um and so i was able to apply the organizing stuff then to to trying to get um the the co2 done away with in, in for good and it took me on a an, an enormous journey um uh which gave full uh, expression to what I regard as what I'm fundamentally is an organisational type guy. You know, I just get things organised. <laughs> yeah, but you do have visions for things. Oh, absolutely. But you can't get anything organised unless you have a proper vision of where you're going uh, and you're able to describe the steps to people and you're able to enthuse people to come along with you because, you know, I'm not fundamentally a workaholic or anything like that. I work long and I work hard, but I'm not a workaholic in the sense that when I delegate to somebody, it stays delegated, and and you know I, I you have to give them the space, and and so uh, maybe organi- organizing things sounds like very trivial to people, but uh, but it's not when when you do it on a grand scale, like setting up the the European Wind Energy Association was something that we did. Um, and, and and being able to then you know promote wind energy across Europe that was very important and then uh, being first with uh, electricity and, and being able to sell wind power in Ireland blended with hydropower from Scotland and from the Alps we wheeled power uh, in the electricity times from we did a deal with EDF in France and we wheeled power across the English Channel, uh, up into Scotland, across the Moyle Interconnector to Northern Ireland and down to our customers here. Um, and, and doing all that at profit. Now, you don't make much profit of selling electricity. The main profit comes from building wind farms and, 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 and so on. And at that time, we, were, we took first mover advantage, so we were, we were able to you know, create enormous wealth. You could have done all that with Bordnemona, though, couldn't you? I mean, you built your first wind farm with Bordnemona. Yeah, but but that's owned by the government, Matt. Now, uh, things that are owned by the government are subjected to a set of criteria that don't necessarily mean business. 
like I made two billion for the government as part of Bordemona. This was a study we had done by uh, <clears throat> one of the big four, Arthur Anderson at the time. Um, and, and they reckon the contribution was two billion. And sure, all that the civil service wanted to do was get rid of me as quick as they could because they really don't like successful guys. You know, that's successful independent guys with maybe egos and stuff like that. That's really uh, non new. And then you find a minister who's tra- like Lowry who's trying to make a name for himself, and he said there was a cosy cartel of me and my ilk, uh, in other words, chief executive of semi state companies. And of course, like, I was very seldom meet the chief executives. I, I don't know what we were cosy cartelling about. It never happened. It was just an invention. And and then he lost all that, and, and so he had to have blamed somebody. So I was conveniently uh, there. But anyway, so everything Can I come back? Because I would have known you very well during that period because I was a business journalist and I covered extensively. In fact, the speech that you gave at one stage which really upset the civil servants was something that I published at the time when I was business editor at the Irish Independent and you really got them worked up and then a story broke about your expenses and I covered that extensively and you still does that still bother you more than 25 years on? Oh uh, maybe not an awful lot you know I mean I'm, I don't look bothered I hope no but you uh, haven't forgotten it oh no but I don't forget anything Matt <laughs> that's my problem well actually it's not my problem it's a huge strength it, 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 people mistake it for intelligence which I'm happy to to have them do you know <laughs> but just when you remember uh, when you remember all, anything that I'm interested in I mean I forget billions of things that I'm not interested in like trivial details but but I would have a tremendous memory for a lot of stuff. My memory of the time would have been that you had enormous ambitions for Board Namona to change it dramatically, that you already were seeing about the need to come away from turf cutting as its main business. You cut all of the fat out of it because it seemed to be an organisation financed by the state simply for the basis of keeping as many people in the Midlands employed as possible. You wanted to run it as a commercial entity and you saw enormous possibilities for it. But you needed capital from the private sector to do it and you weren't allowed to do that. And that was mistaken, I think, by some people as a belief that you wanted to get rich quick yourself. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, actually, I never wanted to get rich quick. I mean, this this sounds very kind of self-aggrandizing, but it just, I've often talked to my wife about it, Hildegard, and, you know, we never set out collectively to to make a fortune or to become very rich. In fact, we still live in the same place that we were living in, and it's a kind of a dormer bungalow, really, you could call it, and, and so we don't go in for the trappings of stuff, but... Uh, but yes, it could easily have been mistaken, and, and I'm sure that the image I created was of you know swashbuckling and that, and and I wasn't shy about telling people about it. <laughs> uh, however, look, that's that's the personality coming out, and um, I'm not. Uh, yeah, but it brought about great success afterwards. Between first of all, electricity, then mainstream renewables. And I suppose it does raise the question, you know, could the state ever accommodate people like you to the benefit of the state? Or would there be too much risk involved? Because there would be times when things will go wrong and suddenly you'll have committees and the Ructus committees doing investigations as to why a particular investment went wrong. Well, you're asked to take uh, all business uh, decisions that you make are, are made with about 60. If you've got 75% information, about that decision, you're doing really well. You, above 50, you're kind of getting there. Generally, you make it with about 60% information. So therefore, this, every, every decision you make in business is a risk. And when you decide, you divide. Uh, that's, a, that's not my quote. That's Tony Blair said that. And, and so you leave people behind you when you make a decision to do something or go somewhere. Um, and it's, you try to bring everybody along with you, but to try and bring a bunch of civil servants whose, whose objective in life is to protect the minister, right? Uh, and to make sure that he's never embarrassed and has to face questions in, in the doyle or, or at the committee stage. And, and so, so therefore, they act more like trustees. Now, trustees are very necessary in pension funds, but they're absolutely disastrous when it comes to business because you'll never take a risk. 
and you've got to take a risk. Um, I mean, as I say, you have limited information, you want to do something, you have a vision, you, want, you know how to get there. And, and so, and then you need capital, you need, you need, you know, obviously good people, work, or great people working with you, uh, a certain modicum of intelligence and uh, a vision, and then you need capital. And, and so, you know, the, the civil service didn't want that. In fact, I think the real reason that they wanted to uh, remove me uh, from Bordnemona was, well, first of all, there was a guy in the company who had a very high position who just was trying to get rid of me because he wanted to be chief executive, right? So, I mean, that, but that happens everywhere. So <laughs> you don't mind that, actually, because that's just, that's just uh, kind of normal behaviour. But uh, I remember um, we had 200 million debt when I went into Bordnemona in 1987. And it was still two hundred million in nineteen ninety six when I got out, and I wrote to Rory Quinn. I I'd, first of all I canvassed the Department of Energy to forgive this debt because it it stood like we could never never do anything with with that pile of debt because if the interest rates changes, I remember in nineteen ninety one I think we were headed for a profitability of of something like five million, which was fantastic at the time. Instead, we finished up making a loss of 10 million because the interest rate changed. It, it actually changed dramatically. Uh, so I remember making representations to Lockery in the civil service that they should be forgiven. Oh, no, that wasn't on. No, 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 that, that wasn't the government's role. So I wrote to Rory Quinn uh, and, and I suggested that. Look, and he was Minister for Finance. He was Minister for Finance at the time. And, and I suggested that uh, there was. So long as we had this incubus here, we had turned the company around and everything was going very well. We were inherently a profitable company, but I, you just couldn't deal with this. So he wrote it off. That did not go down well. Uh, that was, if you like, using your own initiative, uh, which you have to do in business all the time, uh, to solve a problem that you perceive. Now, there's a reason why I'm asking you about all of this historical stuff, because I think it's very relevant to today. A couple of months ago, Eamon Ryan, as Minister, sat in the same seat that you're at now. And I was asking him about wind energy and the failure of the state over the last 20 years to properly support the development of offshore wind energy. And my lack of belief that the targets that have been set for 2030 can be actually met because of state inertia. You know this backwards. So tell us. Where do we stand? Why have we got to the situation we're in and can it be repaired? Uh, yeah, uh, well, that comes back, I think, to a lack of competence, a lack of planning. We don't do planning in Ireland very well, Matt. Um, it's unfortunate that that's the case, but we've, we've been so successful since... Uh, well, Ken Whitaker set it up in the 50s uh, and we had no development at all in Ireland. Uh, and then we joined the EU, and then American companies in the in the 1980s saw that the French were stripping down every uh, every appliance that came into France to make sure it met with European technical specifications. And the Americans said, "Well, let's 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 set up our manufacturing in Europe, so we won't be subject to any tariffs." And so they looked all around the place. They found we were Ireland was members of the EU, spoke English, stable government. Um, no problems and, and no and no inherent problems, no big class differences or anything like that. Um, and we had a tax rate of 12.5%. Maybe it was even 10% at that time, but, you know, let's say 12.5%. No, it was 10 initially. Yeah, yes, that's right. In the 90s, it changed. And so, and so the, Ireland was a very good place. And then the initial guys who came, like Intel and that, they're all kind of a big group in America. They know one another. They talk to one another at various conferences and that. And, and so Ireland became a very popular place. So the IDA has been by far the most successful body in the world at getting foreign direct investment. And we don't need to do anything about that. We just... So it's a big, huge flywheel that just keeps on turning around. Now, is it going to keep on turning around indefinitely in the future? Uh, Pascal Donoghue in the... Uh, in the last budget, which has just gone by a couple of months, he said, no, I don't think this is going to go on forever. Or at least we can't plan that's going to be going on forever. So we have to make hay when the sun shines. We have to put certain money aside. We can't spend it all now. We can't give it away. Um, and and he's right about that. Um, and so we, we don't do R&D in Ireland. We don't have a civil service that actually understands 
that you have to spend small quantities of money, leveraging that hugely then, because the private sector will weigh in behind if they see government trying to do something, and they create the right incentives. So there was never any incentives for offshore wind here. And, and you know, I've, I, I'd regard John Fitzgerald now, um, the economist, as, as a good friend. We were in college together. But, you know, John would have applied conventional economics uh, and would have said, you know, offshore wind is, is expensive, so why don't we forget about that and just do onshore? Now, there were very, very good reasons for doing offshore because, uh, and it's now apparent to everybody that you can't build very much more on land in Ireland. Well, you don't have the grid, first of all. But secondly, NIMBYism has, has just gone above NIMBYism now. And, and so, you know, people are not prepared to tolerate, you know, noise, uh, shadow flicker, uh, visual intrusion, all that stuff. And besides, our capacity factors on land in Ireland are about 28%. When we go offshore in, into the Irish Sea, we probably get capacity factors, maybe 45%. Um, Sorry, what does capacity factor capacity mean? Capacity factor is, is if, if the wind farm ran all the time at its rates out, it should be 100%, right? The higher the wind speed, the higher the capacity factor, the, 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 the more bangs for your buck that you get. So 28% would be, in European terms, quite good because Germany would have let 20 to 24%. We would have 28% on land. Um, off the west coast of Ireland, we can get 65%. So this would be by far the best in the EU. But so no preparation was done for the grid company. Uh, Airgrid didn't plan on, on how, how do you accommodate all this. And that, that's where the rubber meets the road, actually, for an awful lot of wind developments. In fact, that's why we set up the company Supernode. Um, four years ago, me recruited John Fitzgerald, the other John Fitzgerald, uh, from the guy who built the interconnector between Dublin and Liverpool. And it's going fantastic. And it's, I want to get to that in a moment. Which yeah, this is going to be the new Microsoft, by the way. Um, but but let's just stick with, with what's the problem. They had, they didn't, we built the Arclobanks wind farm, right? And I remember going to Michael Woods and says, I'd like to lease the Irish Sea. He says, oh, steady on now, Eddie. You know, that's, that's a bit too ambitious. Why don't you choose some other? Uh, I said, right. So we went for the Arklow Banks. And, and I met a civil servant in, in the Department of the Marine who, when I went into him first, uh, <laughs> he said, what's a wind farm? But a year later, he had a, a procedure organised for us to be able to build the 25 megawatts that we built. And it's still going strong. Apparently, there was some lightning thing recently that knocked one of them out. And I was surprised to see see that because usually these are designed for lightning. But never, that, that's all on the side. The civil service um, don't do any planning. They don't do any planning in agriculture, where we're, we're now struggling with, with uh, these salmon farms. They, they ignore the science in, in that place. Um, and in the Department of Energy is a small department that mainly was concentrated on making sure that the ESB and Airgrid didn't take any risks. Well, let me put it to you a different way. And please correct me if my assumptions here are wrong. But historically, we failed. Now, maybe it was good that we weren't contributing to global warming, but we failed in relation to exploration for oil and gas in our waters because we got completely tied up in this idea of licences and making sure that not too much benefit went to those who were risking their money to drill and to look, and that we're now possibly going to do exactly the same when it comes to wind energy, something which is far better for the environment, something which is very necessary for the electricity capacity of the country and gives us an enormous opportunity to export electricity could be an enormous wealth generator for the country but the dead hand of government is going to be on the basis that let's not see private interests make too much money out of our sea is that a wrong analysis no i think that's uh, that's that's a good part of the analysis um the, the, um and we're a very democratic place, so we talk an awful lot, and we, we, you know, we, we don't do as America does and celebrates the entrepreneur, celebrates the winner. Um, 
we in Europe are much more preoccupied with with control and making sure that people don't have monopolies. Now, and that's not wrong, by the way. I think America's probably gone too far the other way, but still, you know, we could do we could do more celebrating of the of, of the, the people and the companies that go out and take take a chance. We have several of those. I mean, this is like a big coil spring here in Ireland. Now you've got. You had 300,000 small businesses, uh, and we identified those in electricity, and we started selling them electricity. They loved getting it. At, they loved getting green, and they loved it. At, we sold it at a price of minus 10% to the ESP. Uh, so, so that worked out brilliantly. And, and we, we have a great entrepreneurial spirit among the Irish people. Um, and I suppose the, <laughs> the, the government and that, are, you know... <sighs> How would I describe it? They, but, but yeah, you've probably put your finger on it, Matt. They, 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 they want to make sure the private sector doesn't run off with the monies. We want to be a very egalitarian type society, which, by the way, I agree with. I, I agree with egalitarianism, and I think America's gone far too far in terms of you know, uh, letting the rich get super rich. Okay, maybe let me express it slightly differently, but it would have been wrong for the state to have invested hundreds of millions in drilling wells looking for oil and gas, although some politicians wanted the state to do that so that then the state would capture all of the benefits, if there was a benefit. As it happens, only one in every hundred uh, drillings has actually produced oil or gas in this country. So it would have been an enormous waste of money. We have a situation now where we're having licenses are finally going to be given out for the new technologies for windshore. But again, it's all been made so expensive that it seems to be scaring off particular private investors. And yet the state doesn't have the capacity, it would seem, to actually make that particular investment, nor perhaps should it. So what needs to be done, do you think, to reach the government's targets for the enormous increase in wind energy that it's promising by 2030? Yeah, that's, well, I'm wrestling with that as well at the moment because we're, um, we, we recognised back in 2001. I, you see, I came from, if you like, an electricity background. So when I went into the wind energy space with electricity, um, the guys that were my peers in that were... Uh, greens of various hues uh, and small business types, you know, who saw an opportunity, but none of them actually were electricity people. So I recognise that you could uh, wind as such and solar as as, as as came along later, they were never going to be able to supply and meet customer demand that we're used to. In other words, you switch on your lights and they come on. You want to cook your food, you have your electricity. Um, you can't do that with wind and solar. Only you can if you build enough grids. So I read a, an article in, in, from the University of Kassel in Germany, and um, they suggested the wind is always blowing somewhere. And I thought to myself, whoa, that's very interesting. So if you can imagine a storm arriving off the west coast of Ireland, and, and you know, there's no interconnection. In a situation where there's no interconnection, well, then you get a peak. As the storm goes over Ireland at a rate of 56 kilometres an hour, uh, it, it reaches its peak and then it, it waxes and then it wanes. And then it goes over England, it waxes and it wanes. Belgium, same story. So you get this jagged type of arrangement um, of, of electrical output. Now, if you can imagine profound interconnection between the west coast of Ireland and, let's say, Finland. So that storm is, is now, its energy is captured along its entire length. And however much energy you take out of a storm, by the way, you're only, you don't even scratch the surface of the storm. That energy is, is gigantic compared to our electricity demand. So you would, you would now get something that actually, depending on where you locate your, your generation, but you would now get flat, a flat output. So you're talking now here about firm power very close to firm power from, from a storm that arrives. And whether the storm comes from, from any angle at this stage, apart from directly up from the south, but from any angle on the, on the east, on the west-to-east vector, you're going to get a fairly even profile. So that gave rise in my mind to the supergrid. And I tried to build, a, I, I put together a thing called the Friends of the Supergrid, in Europe to try and get the uh, the air grids of, of the, the there's 47 air grids in Europe to try and get them all interested in this. They all had an academic interest in it, but none of them did anything about it. 
And I, I resigned from that in 2014, having set it up about six years earlier. And, and then I, in 2018, I decided we're going to have to do this ourselves. So we set up Supernode. Because this, and, and, and some research has come out in the meantime from the International Energy Agency, which shows if you blend wind from Northern Europe with solar from around the Mediterranean basin, where it's really shining strongly, you get an almost perfect anti-correlation. So when the wind is blowing strong up here, the solar is weak down around the Mediterranean. When, when in, in summertime, when there's big, strong sun down around the Med, we're kind of weak in wind up here. So you get this almost perfect, again, a flattening of the output. So, uh, Sorry, can I just, a couple of things can I ask you about that? So there would always be almost year-round enough supply to meet demand to get rid of the dependence on fossil fuel generation. Yes. Oh, yes. Uh, and because, and, and, and we've done thing, the calculations on that. We know how much it would take. And... This gets away, does it, from the need for battery storage? Because wasn't this the big problem up until now with wind energy, that while the wind was blowing strongly, if it generated excess electricity, there was nowhere to store it and use it at a time when the wind wasn't blowing? That's, that's, that's absolutely the analysis um, that, that, that you know, I confronted in the year 2000 and said, uh, you know, but there is a solution and the solution is a very big grid, and you have to plan for that. Now, AirGrid were going down this line. I was reading some stuff from Dermot Byrne, who I think retired from AirGrid around 2012, and they were getting there. They were actually they were, they were getting there, but since then, we have seen a retrenchment. We've seen, uh, you know, just the island mentality strikes back again. That's probably what is the basis of a lot of our issues here, the island mentality, the conservative um, Sinn Féin I don't use that with big S and big F but you know that the literal meaning of ourselves alone ourselves alone you know you know, like uh, and, and, and everything gets subjected to this ploying indifference and, and we are we, we, we fool ourselves we are the greatest we know you know we, we're the island of saints and scholars we're perfect in fact you know we, we are derivative on, uh, on American R&D and a little bit from Europe, but mainly American R&D. We don't do, we don't create the, the uh, basic ingredients here for our future wealth. Okay, well then tell me about Supernode, because you've done it twice. You've created billion euro enterprises in electricity and in mainstream renewables. You're having a third go, even though you're in your 70s, yeah. right? And I'm not ageist in saying that. Oh, that's I actually, all right. I'm I, 75, yeah. I yeah. greatly admire and respect the fact that you're so energetic to go and do it. But what do you need to do? Who is involved with you in Supernote? And how much money do you actually need to create this global grid? Yeah. Um, well, th that's, you know, easy to answer. We, we, we'll get to... Uh, let, well, let me explain to anybody who's listened to this and to yourself, Matt. Technology readiness level uh, is, 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 is this development, uh, how you measure what stage of development of R&D you're at. Technology readiness level one would be you have an idea, right? Technology readiness level nine is you have a saleable product. We, when we started off, we, had, we, we were at one, obviously. Now we're at technology readiness level four. We'll be at technology readiness level six by 2025. We will get there with the expenditure of 60 million. That, is, that will be contributed equally by me and by Shelley Garaka of, of Acker, who bought Mainstream last year. Right. So we're, and, and they're very enthusiastic about this. So it's a 50-50 joint venture between me and, and Acker Group. Now, but... So sorry, you're putting 30 million quid yes, of your own money in. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, and very happy to do so. And so is Shell. Uh, Shell Inge, he's the, he's the guy who founded uh, Acker. And, but 
now we get to the stage where we have to deploy this technology in the sea and we have to demonstrate it. This is going to need hundreds of millions. So a lot of our activity at the moment is persuading Europe that this is the solution, that you don't have to do this hydrogen story that everybody's talking about now, and you don't have to spend a gigantic amount on, on batteries, particularly when you think about this. And I'm, by the way, a new book coming out in February, uh, which describes how we can do this in Europe, and we've put a huge amount of work into this. Uh, we'll be launching here and in, in Limerick, and, uh, and then in Brussels, and then Berlin, to, to just say, we need the supergrid in Europe. We cannot decarbonize without the supergrid. Um, so we, a lot of our activities in public affairs now saying to Europe, listen, we're going to need some serious help at this because you know, the private sector can do so much, but it needs strong policy guidelines. But also when you see that the, the, um, uh, the cable that's going from Cork to France now is getting granted about 560 million for conventional technology, there's nothing, absolutely nothing unique in this. And it's, by the way, the cost has gone up dramatically um, in, in the last while to 1.6 billion now. Um, so we, we, we think we have a case to be made here that like what Joe Biden is doing in America with the IRA, the, the, uh, what's this, the Inflation Reduction Act. Um, and, and we in Europe, are, they're they're, they're forging ahead in America compared to Europe now because Europe really doesn't embrace this thing that we can supply free power from solar and wind it'll be part of Europe so we don't we're not dependent on anybody else we would be replacing 330 billion which is what we spend every year on fossil fuels at the moment 300 of that is spent abroad uh, I mean outside of the confines of Europe and 300 million uh, or 0.3 of a billion within within Europe, but mainly it's money that we, we shell out every year. So now we move to a free system, and we're going to have all these car batteries. Right, now there's 300 million vehicles in Europe, and each of them, let's say, is 100 kilowatt hours. Uh, this, this, you just multiply uh, those together, and you come up with a very large amount of battery storage that was not invested by the public utility companies, that was invested by you and me in our cars. Now, mainly, when we connect to the grid at the moment, it's to take electricity from the grid into our cars. But if you can imagine a future where it would be interactive. Now, this exists in several countries at the moment. So, so the car, when we drive to work and we park, and let's say we have 80% of our battery there, and, and you know you get that on your app that tells you how much, and... The, the, the government or the, the utility could say, we'll buy some of that uh, capacity you have in your battery. We'll buy that at some rate or other, which is pre-agreed, let's say. And you can specify, well, I, I, I don't need very much the rest this week. I'll be going away at the weekend, so I can afford to get down to 20%. So I can sell them between 80% of my battery and 20%. Now, you do that over 300 million vehicles, and you can save up to two trillion investment in battery storage. In in the best case. In the worst case, it's a hundred billion investment you can save. In other words, that the electricity customer doesn't have to pay that, pay for that investment, because we've already paid for it with our cars. So you still will need, despite this big supergrid, um it'll it'll handle most of the of the balancing that you need but you still there could be times let's say when there's a lot of cloud over the mediterranean there's not much wind up here when you are going to need uh, some battery storage uh, and and yes there will be, have to be some big batteries built like they've done already in uh, in south australia uh, they had a big crash in the grid and elon musk put in a, a hundred megawatt hour battery um, there uh, how persuasive has this been with the authorities in the european union what sort of response are you getting Oh, uh, it, very few people know very much or know, know anything about electricity. It's it's not an easy um, debate to have. Um, so that's why we have to kind of... But, but sorry, even with 
the worries about continued fossil fuel supply, particularly after what's happened with the Russian invasion of Ukraine and the impact on prices and how that has focused attention. And also given the bigger picture in relation to the need to get away from burning fossil fuels to protect the environment. Does that not focus the minds of the authorities at national level and international level to support the investment in new alternative technologies? That's that is that is a great question, and but you have to think outside of you know the the, the reason the, the if you like the logic of the situation. Consider this: the fossil fuel companies exist to sell fossils, and they exist as a massive uh, public affairs interest group in Europe and everywhere else. By the way, they spend billions every year on on proposing various uh, and going as far as the law will the law will allow them in any country in america you can pay your senators you can pay your senators advisors you can you can you know you can do whatever you like in terms of money and, and it's not illegal and they do it in europe that's not allowed so now they propose various uh, exotic solutions which will still allow fossil fuels to go on being used like for instance carbon capture and storage Carbon capture and storage is, is possible, yes, but never be commercial. And it'll have some small applications somewhere. But the fossil fuel people have, been, have convinced Europe over the last 30 years that, oh, yeah, we, we're nearly there, we can get there. The latest one is hydrogen. Oh, you don't have to worry, you know, because we'll, we'll do hydrogen. And, and so, so it's, if, if you just were in a room and you, were, you, you had no, if you like, big, huge influence out there, I think it would be quite easy to persuade Europe to do this. But, you know, you've seen, you've seen the cop in Copenhagen getting destroyed by the fossil fuel industry. You want to see the spend, their, uh, their annual spend that went up to, leading up to 2009. And they completely destroyed the cop at that time. In fact, it was only, and we had to wait another six years until Paris came along, till we saw some action there. And that's all down to the spend in the fossil fuel industry. So we have a public enemy number one out there, who will always argue, we're not public enemy, we're just meeting people's demand, we love it here. But when you think that Exxon in 1954 knew that burning oil was a, and, and, and gas was actually uh, harming the environment, and was causing global warming, and have spent all that the, the previous seventy years trying to convince people skeptical. Get your scientists, get your, you know, just be skeptical about it. And so it's very hard to win this debate when we, we whatever amount of money that I might have, um, which is absolutely minuscule compared to what the oil industry can can turn. Look at the profits they've made in the last year since since we came out of COVID. It's absolutely staggering, and the amount of money that they spend. I mean, BP invested recently in um, uh, Drax Power Station, carbon capture and storage. They spent $2.5 million on that. And, and that got, I would say, a thousand times more coverage than the fact that they, in, in the same year they spent $10.4 billion on opening up new oil wells and gas fields. Right. That's what you're up against, you see here. And uh, the media report what the media know about, and people with with money can reach and and can put can put forward things can, like the hydrogen proposition. I mean that's really holding everything up now. Europe has spent five hundred and fifty billion on hydrogen. I never heard anything so mad in my whole life as this. This is nonsense. And then now, of course, they're going around. We we by the way the the European. Things are so bad in Europe right now that every single turbine manufacturer is losing money. Why is that? Uh, because of these auction processes that uh, people go through to allocate uh, contracts uh, to developers like ourselves. To protect public money? No, no, not really to protect. We've, we've already, we're coming in now between a half and a third the price of fossil fuels. So we've already, we, we moderate the price of electricity in every country we're in. We took the price of public electricity in Chile down from 11 to 4. This is in mainstream renewables. This is mainstream renewables. From 11 to 4, right? 
So we're making this massive contribution, but that requires that, and, and every new generation of wind turbine that comes along costs 250 million for the developer to, uh, sorry, the wind turbine manufacturer to do. So we've, we've, we've applied conventional economics uh, to us in, in the wind game and in the solar game, whereas in, in the fossil fuel game, 80% of it is owned by Saudi Arabia, Nigeria, Iran, Iraq, you name it, and it's a cartel. So there's no conventional economics applied there. Conventional economics gets applied to us, so we must have competition. We are about to lose all our manufacturing of wind turbines in Europe, even though we invented it in Denmark with the Gensler machine in the 1980s. We invented it. We will, unless something big is done in Europe now, we will lose all that. And where will we get the wind turbines to populate the Irish Sea and the Atlantic from? Oh, they'll come from China. They'll come from America. They'll come from people who actually uh, understand that this industry, we need to find a new paradigm. And that gets me back to where we were earlier. And whatever about what Supernote might do with the grid, if it doesn't, is Ireland going to be able to develop the offshore wind energy that the government is promising us? Oh, not at all. Eamon Ryan himself uh, has said that the 30,000 megawatts that he, he, he persuaded the government to engage in, and we have to thank him for that, because ho- however uh, little planning has been done to give effect to that, uh, having that aspiration and that vision is great. You know, and I see recently down at, uh, when he was down at the Port of Foynes, he was talking about 75 gigawatts, that's, uh, you know, 75,000 megawatts. Now, we own 10, 10 times the area of Ireland out into the North Atlantic. We, can put, we could put any amount of turbines out there that we wanted to. Um, uh, but, as I said, we, 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 don't, we haven't done any, any planning for that. So we but don't, we don't the, have the infrastructure, six, do he we? He said, we'll be making, with the 30,000 megawatts, we'll be making six times as much electricity as we need here. So, therefore, we need the grid there is no grid out there, and you you know you can't take that stuff into Ireland because we can only uh, consume one sixth of it. So you have to have a grid to export it, and and Eamon knows that, and has been supportive of us uh, as far as I can tell, uh, in 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 promulgating that throughout Europe. You mentioned fines. John Moran, the former Secretary General of the Department of Finance, sat in the same chair that you were in a few months ago, and he was extolling the potential for the Port of Fines to contribute enormously to the offshore wind energy future. I mean, how difficult is it to actually use what we have to make our ports functional for the support of the construction of the wind farms and then for putting the infrastructure in place for the future selling of the electricity? That's a good question, Matt. And and let me begin to address it by saying that uh, floating offshore wind is is different from any other form of wind energy because you get huge local content. Um, uh, We're looking at, for instance, the concrete foundations for the floating wind, 25,000 tonnes, uh, of cement or concrete is needed. And Mungret, um, CRH, is just up the road from Foynes. 25,000, and that has to be built in Foynes, our money point, or, you know, in the Shannon Estuary. There's really no other place in Ireland that I think that can be done. Fantastic opportunity here. Um, whereas with other types of foundations, like fixed foundations, like we've installed in the North Sea, and, and we've installed a huge amount up there, that's all manufactured abroad or can be manufactured abroad and then shipped in a ship. Here, with that kind of volume that we're talking about for floating foundations, and even if it's steel, you'll still manufacture it locally. The blades, you'll manufacture locally. We need jetties down there in Foynes now, and they've done a report, and the IDA are working with us, by the way, um, in, in um, Supernode and with, with the Port of Foynes, uh, and, and I've been working with Foynes now for a good long time, 
uh, and and we're delighted with you know you you need probably a couple of kilometres of jetty because you'd be doing all this manufacturing in the sea, in in the harbour space, and then the, you won't be able to haul it out to put it in place offshore because the weather won't allow you to do this on many occasions. So you have to have storage areas here. So and every megawatt that you build offshore will will cause 16 person years of jobs now this is irena the uh the the crowd who are out in abu dhabi their un funded agency and they figured that it's 16 person years for every megawatt you build and when you start doing the maths on this i remember talking to timmy dooley from from he was a finfall deputy from clare very enthusiastic to support us by the way um and timmy and i was talking about the twenty thousand jobs he's eddie if we got 2,000 jobs along the West Coast, we'd be absolutely delighted. Here we're looking at complete transformation of the West Coast of Ireland and the South Coast if we only, if we only did this exploitation. You see, I'm sometimes baffled as to why the politicians and civil servants don't embrace this, given that we are worried about the population becoming too centred in Dublin. We want regional disbursement. We need new jobs. But could it be that what you've just explained is just far too ambitious an undertaking for many of those impositions of official responsibility to contemplate and process? Yeah, you know, Matt, the power of the vision comes into place here, you know, and I, I'm, not, I'm not going to minimise our role here, right? Uh, yeah, we have to build a constituency that just tells the politician, and I'm talking about the people, we have to reach into the heart of the people uh, to, to force the politicians not to lose sight of this goal here. Let us reconstitute this country. The sales of electricity from Ireland will be with, once we get it built, that's it forever. That's it forever. It doesn't matter what happens to Intel or, uh, or any of these, uh, even, even the pharmaceuticals. Now, we are, I, I, don't, I think Ireland is going to be the pharmaceutical capital of the world. It is now probably and going to remain so. But, but all the other high tech can move to where the, the, the wages are cheaper. You see, just a slight diversion, but we're building new towns within Dublin, Cherrywood, Adamstown, various other places. There's a potential to build a major new population centre, I've strikes me, of Foynes, because you have the rail line is being reopened, investment in that for heavy goods, which could be used as well in time for passenger. You have a new €450 million Euro bypass from Limerick down to it. And yet the county development plan allows for guess how many new houses to be built in the Foynes area between now and 2028. This is what John Moran told us, 50 50. There's no joined up thinking there. There's no thinking that instead of having new towns in Dublin, you can have new towns as satellites to places like Limerick, allowing people to continue to live in the west of Ireland and have really good jobs for the future. You see, it all comes down to to the power of the individual here. And, uh, you know, you think about Brendan O'Regan when he faced into Shannon and set up the first catering college there. There's a great book written by Brian O'Connell, a fellow chemical engineer. Uh, and and I, uh, I would advise all you and, and all your re- readers to our listeners to, to read it um, because it describes how one man actually made a gigantic difference here. Ken Whitaker made a gigantic difference. McLaughlin, who set up the ESB and built uh, uh, Art and Crusher, made a gigantic difference. We have to believe, and I believe fundamentally, in the power of the messy. You know, like the one man can actually... Uh, I, d- I used to have arguments with my father about this, because he maintained that, listen, it's all down to one guy, right? <laughs> and I said, no, it's the team. Now, of course, it's a combination of both. But, I, you know, we in Ireland can do it when, when you've got enough enthusiasm and enough just, just hard work to be able to make it all happen. And... Uh, it's so powerful now here that I don't think it can be ignored. And I think that 50 houses will be seen as a figment of, of somebody's fever, schizophrenic brain in years to come. You know, like there'll be 50,000 houses built here because, because Europe needs the energy. There's, no, <laughs> there's absolutely no way to get away from this. It's going to happen. But will that be uh, Lithuania, Estonia, Latvia, Finland, Portugal, France... 
um, Holland, Belgium, England, Norway. They're all ahead of us at the moment. So they will build it. If we don't, if we don't build it, they will build it. So it's time that the people here got, got their finger out and started doing some planning. Because my understanding is I've heard from various sources that in the EU, particularly the French and the Germans, believe that that's what our big contribution to the EU has to be, that we provide the wind energy for the future. Oh, Timmermans has said so. Timmermans is the vice president of the uh, EU Commission. And, and he said so. He's called on us to do it. So the, that's what I mean. There is a big wall of thing, And this is where our book that's coming out now in, in, um, in, in February, I see this as another brick in the wall. This is, you know, this is going to lay out, if you like, a plan for doing this. Because we need to have, if you want a super grid in Europe, you have to move from a native nationwide electricity supply to a continental-wide electricity supply. That's what wind and solar need. And we've enough of it to supply 10 times Europe's electricity need. Talking of planning, and you did mention it earlier, you are 75. How long are you planning to remain active and driving all of this? Uh, You know, as long as I, uh, uh, as long as it's necessary, Matt. As long as it's necessary. I I mean, I can't imagine you ever retiring. No, 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 that's not on. That's... I, I, I want to do a lot of things and still do a lot, want to do a lot of travel. But, you know, so long as you have this need to, uh, to change the world, uh, something you're born with, something that you, you like doing and something that you've had relative uh, success at. So why not? And so long as your wife sticks with you and the kids are happy, you know, and all that, then, then why not continue? Um, and it is about energy, actually. It is about do you have the personal energy? And is, is the old memory still <laughs> good? Um, and, and thankfully, um, so far, although if you're losing your memory, you probably don't remember it too much. But yes, no, we'll, we'll continue doing this, um, at least until we see um, Europe uh, going down this road profoundly until the supergrid is adopted. I think if, if, if there was a big decision... In, in three or four years' time to get to build the supergrid, and they had the, the the European regulator set up, they had the European architectural thing set up, we had the uh, independent uh, uh, grid operator set up because that's what we need. We need to copy what exists in America with the MISO, the Mid American Independent System Operator. If if you want to plan the supergrid, you have to actually and this is what the book does it shows how that can be done and we put a lot of thought into that and and we want to show that look this is all possible you don't need to go to the moon to do this you don't need to invent a bunch of gigantic new technologies you just need to decide that this is the right thing to do uh, and then the commission will do it now i think the european commission is on our side but against this backdrop you always have these enormous big rich oil and gas companies who are saying unnecessary don't have to think about that you know we'll bloody 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 because despite all of the effort that's been made in developing renewable energies the amount of fossil fuel that we're still consuming is as much as it's ever been it's not in decline because as economies grow even if there's a greater share taken of renewables the overall output of the oil industry continues to grow. Oh, yes. Oh, absolutely. And uh, undiminished, we're making um, 37 billion... We're putting 37 billion tonnes extra of CO2 into the atmosphere every year from from electricity generation, or, or sorry, fossil fuel use, not just electricity, there's cars and there's home heating and there's all that stuff. Um, and then there's another probably 20 billion... Uh, tons on top of that which come from other gases like methane and 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 cfcs and what's it going to do to the world what's it going to leave for future generations after you and i are gone well the one that kind of gets uh, me a little bit excited and and i gave a a paper on this in the rds some years ago You, you you're going to see africa destroyed as a place to live now what are the people down there going to do they're going to look up to Europe and, and some parts of Europe down maybe down the south like Greece and that they'd be the if you like the poorer areas of Europe. They will flood in there. Now they're doing it at the moment, but they're they're kind of controlled. But if if you can imagine if the Sahara keeps on marching southwards, uh, and it becomes intolerable to live in Africa, well, you will see uh, 
democracy getting challenged in Europe, particularly also when the sea levels begin to rise. I mean, in in 2021, 600 billion tonnes uh, of ice moved from the Greenland ice shield into the North Atlantic, raising sea levels across the world by 2.2 millimetres uh, over the whole world. Um, so most of our cities are built uh, on coasts. So with, with, with uh, huge amounts of migration from places that are no longer inhabitable, and the fact that our houses, a lot of our houses in Dublin, and we, we again stood there, software package you can buy to see just how much Dublin would get flooded, uh, and how much London, and New York, and Tokyo, and everywhere. So democracy and our civilization is what is what we're fighting for here. Anytime we try and cover this on The Last Word Today FM, we get lots of people contacting the programme. You're scaremongering, you're doom-mongers, uh, you're chicken littles, you're... There's always been climate change. Things have always changed. We human beings adapt and new technologies will be developed to protect us. What do you say to those people? Oh, yeah, I mean... A CO2 molecule has, has an unusual property in that uh, it... it absorbs it changes its mode of frequency and i'll be a little technical here because nobody's ever explained it to me and it's only recently i came to understand it but that co2 molecule the only real way of getting rid of that out of the atmosphere is photosynthesis now we're cutting down our forests and we shouldn't be doing that um, another venture of mine by the way is grown teak in colombia we're, we're we're doing we're doing uh, having a great time out there um but uh, but that's only tiny but you have to have the Amazon uh, uh, rainforest intact and all the other rainforests and all the other temperate forests around the world. They are the lungs of the world because that's the only way of getting rid of really of CO2. CO2 can go into the sea, but then it gets saturated because it's not very soluble. Right, so CO2 goes on. It takes a, a, a quantum of energy being reflected from the Earth. It changes its mode of vibration. That quantum of energy was heading out into space, right? Now it hits the CO2 molecule. The CO2 molecule then is quantized, so it goes back to its original state and it releases a certain amount of energy. But it's not, now it's, it's releasing some of that back towards the Earth. So that, and that CO2 same molecule will go on getting hit by these quanta until it's gone. So every, it, it, it doesn't just happen once. This is real Armageddon stuff. And, and we are destroying the planet for humans. Oh, the planet will recover. I mean, there's no question. Gaia is very strong. The Earth is going to... I mean, it, it takes the, all this stuff in its stride. But I'm thinking about, you know, the, the huge amount of work that's gone in and the collective learning that brings us to where we are in the world now with this civilization that we have. And it's incredibly civilized. I mean, you'll just look at the role of women lately compared to what it is of what it used to be you know seriously we we've we've it's taken us a lot of wars and a lot of learning to get where we are that is what i see is getting destroyed and i don't care what people say about it this this thing always happened no it didn't always happen we had 270 parts per million in the atmosphere of co2 which which is necessary to give us the heat for us to evolve and live now we're at 410 or maybe even 415 parts, up by 50%. And we have put that up and we continue to put it up every year. So it's not just it always happened. It didn't always happen. It's our industrialization that's done this. Well, just to finish, though, and I don't want this to sound glib, but then what do you make of people who still want to cut turf and burn it because they say they've no other way of <laughs> eating their lives. It's a ridiculous matter. I mean, you want to finish with this? Look. No, I only uh, ask you because uh, you were once the boss of Bordemona, which yeah. now actually does not cut turf anymore. That's which right. Which must be a major. We're getting into offshore possible. wind now. Yeah. Yeah. Ah, oh, look, I mean, I, I don't have any firm views at all. I mean, the, the, the small amount of turf cutting that poor people in Ireland do. It's neither here nor there when it comes to it. I mean, I wouldn't... That's wouldn't, why you're a practical environmentalist. I, yeah, I wouldn't get too excited about that. I mean, there are far more uh, important issues that we've just covered in the last hour, you know, that need to be dealt with. Um, 
I, I think it's directionally it was very good uh, when we uh, r- uh, did the R and D to to build three new power stations in Bordenmon. That that was a great achievement of ours, by the way, in Bordenmon. And I never got to see them power stations built, but I remember going to Europe and telling them that peace was renewable, um, and they believed me. Uh, well, I don't know whether they believe me or not, but they gave us twenty million to build the first uh, power station, and myself and Brendan Halligan, the late Brendan, late great Brendan. Um, uh, so, so what they do, what a few guys do, is, is look, they need heat. We all need heat for the winter. Well, actually, just one other thing. You say you're going to travel a bit. I mean, you're no longer chairman of Mainstream Renewable. That's right. Yes. But do you still have an involvement with it? Oh, I have a huge investment there, Matt. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm more than interested in what's happening. And my daughter Leslie, she's on the board. Um, uh, the. Uh, so, yeah, but I don't have any formal involvement. I'm not on the board. I'm not a consultant. They don't pay. So it's Supernode is your thing now? Oh, Supernode is, is taken up. Uh, you know, Supernode is just the most important venture I've ever done. I mean, because this is really new stuff. We're, we're using superconductivity, which is uh, when you reduce certain, uh, te- the temperature of certain compounds, they conduct electricity without losses. And that's what, that's what Supernode is doing. Um, and... Oh, this will be this will be if we if we get it right and get it done quick enough before the Chinese come into it. This will be the new Microsoft. Eddie O'Connor, I probably should have spent more time talking to you about personal things, but you know what? We're talking about big important issues for the globe and for humanity, really, when we're talking about the future and global warming. So I'm glad we concentrated on that. Thank you very much for joining me. Thank you for having me, Matt. That's Eddie O'Connor, the first in a new series of Magnified with Matt Cooper. We've lots of great interviews coming up over the next number of weeks. So please subscribe on the Go Loud app or on Apple or Spotify or wherever it is that you get your podcasts. And uh, please recommend it to your friends as well. And uh, leave a positive endorsement, please, wherever it is that you stream or download your podcasts. So until the next time, from me, Matt Cooper, thank you for joining us. <laughs>